Maybe we should get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give thee thanks for thy holy word and for the message of the epistle to the Romans. We pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to receive it after we hear it and then to live it after we've received it. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Steve sends his best regards. He is with his um, uh, daughter and son-in-law and grandchildren in Richmond this weekend. And um, next weekend I will be in Atlanta with my nonprofit. And so Steve will be back in the corner seat. I'm going to try to not commit too much heresy today because we're dealing with some really, really tough stuff. Uh, but this is really, I, I've kind of looked forward to, it just kind of worked out that I happen to be the guy who is leading this today, but I have looked forward to this passage from almost the beginning of our study of Romans. It's the very last, probably the last half of chapter 8 of the epistle to the Romans. And it is the end of the second of four major themes. It is the climax of the second of the four. But in a way, it's also the climax of the first half of the epistle. Because recall that Paul's epistle breaks down into four sections. The wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God, and the will of God. Now, the first two, wrath and now grace, are really kind of two sides of the same coin. Because in the one hand, if we think of wrath as the law and grace as the gospel, and the way the two of them interact, I mean, that's really what we've been grappling with for essentially since, since Rally Sunday when we started this. So... This is where Paul is bringing to a, a final explanation the relationship between grace and the law. And then we will turn in chapters 9 through 11 to God's plan, how he's going to redeem all of the world to him through Christ, including the Jews. And then he will wrap it up with the will of God for the rest of the epistle. But let's look at first the first section that I want to read begins at verse 18 and it runs through verse 27. It's not as long as that sounds. If somebody would read verses 18 through 27, it begins with an absolute brilliant verse 18. It's one of those that just sticks in the mind forever and ever. Who's who's willing to do that for us? Mike, would you do it? Sure. Okay. 18 through 27. Take it away. Okay. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation 
have been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we did not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows that what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thank you. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. And then Paul writes in a, in a very um, allegorical way comparing this apocalyptic vision of the end times with the, with the labor pains that precede childbirth. It's interesting to me that he starts with a comparison that is really more of a contrast. It's kind of unusual, comparing sufferings with glory. And he compares them, he sets them up as a comparison only to knock them down is not even worth comparing. They are really more of a contrast. He says it's, it's not even worth considering the sufferings of the present time with the glory that's about to come. And we understand that in the sense that the early apostles had the vision of Christ and the suffering of Christ and knew that the following of Christ was going to require suffering, was going to trigger persecution, and they rejoiced in it. We remember in the book of Acts, how some of the apostles were flogged by the Jewish temple authorities for preaching, and they went away rejoicing that they had shared in some of the sufferings of their Lord. But they're not worth even considering by comparison to the glory that was going to come. Again, the apocalyptic image where he refers to the whole creation as groaning in labor, it's a, it would get us way off too deep in the weeds to try to draw this all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the fall in the, in the book of Genesis, and I don't want to go there, but, but it's probably enough to point out that, that Paul was, was speaking apocalyptically in sort of a way that that John wrote in the Revelation where the new Jerusalem is being, is being anticipated, but also that this, this imperfect creation is imperfect in a way because we who are fallen rebellious creatures hold creation back from being the ultimate perfect thing that it can be and that it will be after this new birth. Uh, The natural world, to put it 
the way John Stott put it, the natural world is unfulfilled until we have been transformed in the new Jerusalem. Now, I'd like to go forward now. I don't want to delve too long into this section because the real meat of what I call more than conquerors, which is the title of this of this lesson today, the real meat of what makes us more than conquerors is to be found in verses 28 through 39, which is the end of the which is the end of the chapter. And the this has been compared uh, favorably to every other similar passage in the New Testament and perhaps in all of Scripture as the most soaring language and the most vivid theology and the most comforting theology too. I'd like to read the two of these as two separate passages, but I'd like to read them back to back because they they sort of build upon one another. The first of these is kind of short, verses 28 through 30. And then the second is verses 31 through 39. Do I have a volunteer for 28 through 30? Frank, you'll do that? And 31 through 39? Okay. Well, we'll just read them back to back and pay attention again with each of these as each reading begins. Pay attention to the first verse or a couple of verses that introduce them because, again, they are very memorable. Frank, go ahead. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And from those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any change against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you. Very well read, both of you. Isn't that magnificent language? The King James Version soars even more. I mean, I invite you to go pull the old King James off of your shelf this afternoon and read beginning at, at verse 31 to the end of the chapter. And if you aren't thrilled by that language, then you, I submit, 
or missing something very precious. But the theology of this is really phenomenally uh, beautiful, not just the language, but the theology itself. It doesn't easily escape notice that in the first reading, the first of these two passages, beginning at verse 28, Paul sets out five things that God does for us. And then in the rest of the chapter, he sets out five questions that flow from those five things. And I believe that the that the symmetry is intentional. The five things have been referred to by Stott as five affirmations of what God does for us. Number one, foreknowledge. Number two, predestination. Number three, calling. Number four, justification. And number five, glorification. The five affirmations that Paul lays out here. Notice that at the end of the first passage, the one that Mike read, Paul explains all of these things that we don't do, that we can't do, or that we don't know. We don't know how to pray properly, but the Spirit intercedes to help us. We are weak, but the Spirit intercedes to hold us up. We also lack knowledge of God's overall plan. The, a, a good portion of the writings of C.S. Lewis were devoted to the things that he did not know or he could not understand in God's plan. The whole book of Job is about a man who did not understand. Although he was a righteous man, he could not know and he did not understand what God's plan for him was in all of this misfortune. And yet... Verse 28, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who were called according to his purpose. Purpose, that's important. What are those five things? Paul says, after saying all these things we don't know, he makes five affirmations of things we absolutely do know. And we know it from the scripture and we know it from the gospels. What is it? Those of us he foreknew. Now, foreknowledge in the legal sense is almost like foreseeability. Could you know that something is going to happen ahead of, or should you have known that something is going to happen? But there's a deeper Hebrew use of the word knowledge that that uh, is probably almost surely at work here. Remember when the prophet Jeremiah God said to him, before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. Now, that kind of knowledge implies a relationship. Now, that's mind-blowing when you think about it, that before we even existed, before our ancestors existed, in a timeline, eons before we were ever here, God had this relationship with us. That's a sobering thought, but it's the first of the five propositions that Paul lays out. Those of us he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to him like Christ. How did he want us to be like Christ? So that Christ would be 
like the first of the sons, and all of us would be siblings, that is, children of God, in one big family. Christ, the first son, the crown prince, if you will, and the rest of us, the siblings of Christ, the children of God. He for uh, he foreknew us and he predestined us to be that. Now here is where lots of Christians get off into the weeds of predestination and read all sorts of things into that that I don't think are there. Predestination, I don't think, implies that that there's that there's some tablet up in heaven on which only some names are written and the rest are not. And those names that are written are the lucky ones who wind up conformed to God through uh, in, in in the image of Christ, and the rest are consigned to hell or Sheol or or Hades or somewhere else. I don't think that. What I think is that salvation is completely the will of God. That is, that nothing that we do or don't do, nothing that we can do for ourselves, nothing of our merit can do anything toward salvation. It is all done for us by Him. That was His That was His predestined intention. The word that is translated as predestination, the Greek word, pops up all through the New Testament. And what it really translates to is God's plan. God's plan is to draw all of his people whom he foreknew, with whom he already had a relationship, to him and to conform us to the image of Christ. It is all done for us. Now, it is also true that we have to accept it. Now, some would say, as many have said, well, if I have to accept it, in one sen- in what sense is it true that it is all done for me? Because part of it is in my hands. I have to say yes. By the same token, if my saying yes accepts it, in what sense is it all done for me beforehand? It is, it is two undeniable fundamental Christian truths that our salvation was already done for us by God through Christ and that it is our free will to accept, to receive it in the words of of John's prologue, to receive it and to become children of God. These are two immutable truths that standing next to one another appear to be in irreconcilable conflict. And yet, there they are. There's a fancy word for that, and it's not paradox, it's antinomy. I looked it up. I had to look it up, even to find out how to pronounce it. But the word isn't important. What's important is that, at a fundamental level, Christ has said that no one comes to the Father but by me, and yet Christ has spoken to his apostles as uh, uh, about those who have rejected him. So it is, it is 
two fundamental truths about predestination that the two operate together even though they appear to be like like you know, trying to push the poles of two magnets together and they, they repel one another. Anybody want to grapple with that before we move on to the other of the of the five affirmations? Well, there, Frank? There are several places that refer to pre, uh, predestination. One is, I'll just paraphrase, in Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, In your book were written all the days of my life before right. any of them a day written. Right, right. Which raises serious questions about free will and predestination. Because before you were born, if God knew, as this verse alleges or says, um, every day of your life was already written in, in that book, which means that every every decision you every decision you make, every offer you have, every contingency is already He already knows. See, so does that mean you really have the free will to change anything? What I asked him, and I remember it. I remember I said, Paul, question. Did Judas or Pontius Pilate have a choice? And Paul's answer with a big smile on his face was, no. I remember. You were right out here. Yes, right. We, he, was, he, was, he, was he was walking to the 11 o'clock service, and, and we were walking out of the class. Yes. Um, this is one of those... This is one of those theological truths it's sort of like an Escher drawing you know you look at it from one direction and you see one thing and you look at it from the other direction and you see another thing and you can't it doesn't it, it it the mind can't comprehend it as one and I guess it's one of those things that we again we cannot know but these five affirmations I think when we look at them all together those that he, that he knew, he predestined to be brought to him in the image, conformed to him in the image of his son Christ. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Now, what does it mean that he called? Those he already foreknew, all of us for, with whom he has already had a relationship and whom it is his plan to conform to Christ, to come to him by conforming to Christ, he called us. The deist would say that God would compare God to a, a watchmaker who designs and builds this elaborate, beautifully functioning creation, winds it up and then walks away to let it run, that, let it run as it will. But Paul would say no. He's not a watchmaker. He didn't leave the watch to run. He called his creation to be one with him, to have a relationship with him. And those who he called, he justified. What is that? Paul has used this word over and over again. It's a legal term. It means he treats us as, as blameless, even though you know we're not, but he's called us. And having called us, he's justified us through Christ, our advocate. And those who he has justified, he has glorified. 
In other words, in the image of the prodigal son, the father puts the mantle of the cloak of sonship back on the prodigal's shoulders, kills the fatted calf, and declares a holiday. He has glorified the son, even though the son is not worthy of glorification. That's imputed righteousness. That is, and I propose that these five affirmations describe a process which can only culminate in what we asked about a few weeks ago, sanctification. Being sanctified, being being like him. This is These are the five affirmations that that Paul lays out the things that we absolutely know from Scripture. All the things we don't know, one day we will know. Or the things that we are intended to know, one day we will know. We see now as through a glass darkly, as as was written. Let me ask you this question. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, I don't know if I can answer it, but well, go ahead. I'm, just, I'm curious. There are a number of references to predestination and yet the Episcopal Church, as far as I know, and I'm not a scholar or a student really student of it, does not believe in predestination, certainly to the extent the Presbyterians do. Am I right or wrong? I, agree, I, mean, I have no idea. And, and here, here's why I, here's what I mean when I say I have no idea. Um, some would tell you that the Eng- and I think this is probably closer to right than not right that the English reformers and the early Calvinist reformers, um, primarily Calvin and Knox, is that right? John Knox? Had almost indistinguishable theologies. I I don't know. What I do know, though, I'm not really interested. I mean, some people are, and it's great if you if you want to analyze the way the denominations have evolved and the way the denominations over the ages have applied doctrine and come to what we do there. What I'm really interested in is in what Paul wrote as, as the revealed truth. So I don't mean to dismiss your question. I honestly don't know. I suspect, though, that if we if we plumb down to the core theology in the English prayer book, which is still our prayer book, notwithstanding a few <laughs> a few twists and turns, I think that you will. I suspect that the scholars would tell you that the Mark Genelets, not me, uh, that that the that the real theology. And the theology of the of those on the on the Calvinist side of the ledger are pretty much the same Reformation theology. But as far as I'm concerned, what's important is to understand what Paul is trying to communicate here. These five affirmations are sources of great comfort. Although we don't know lots of things and we don't understand plenty of things. We can hang our hats on. We can take these five to the bank because they they come from the Gospels. And now, having posed... Go ahead. Yes. Some of what we've studied in Romans 
think about God's interaction with Adam and Eve and with Abraham. It doesn't seem as though, like after Adam and Eve have done wrong, he's searching for them in the garden. He didn't walk straight up to them. He's questioning them about what's happened. It seems like he's talking with somebody more as because he had some free will to do whatever. And with Abraham also, he's rewarded because he had faith. He followed what God asked him to do. But at the same time, it was as though he could have not done that. And maybe God was even happy, surprised that he did what he was asked. Maybe there are others who failed along the way. He reckoned, yes, he reckoned their faith. interaction with God isn't one like where he's just, it's perfectly smooth. There's, There's questioning, doubt. Right. Fear. You can't do this. You can't see me. It seems like more, more like there is some interaction with. So it's not, it's not as though God's all knowing, all controlling. Well, he. That's, wow. That's a, a fraught statement and one that probably. Volumes of of commentary have been written about, and analysis have been written about, the relationship between free will and and what was and what God in his omnipotence and his unboundedness by time and place in a word omniscience already knows I would put it this way that God created us in his image meaning that he intended for us to have a moral sense and a degree of free will and that we chose we choose through through original sin to exercise that free will in ways that are not his will which we have the free will to do but again the the antinomy is that we have salvation that is completely done for us and we have the free will to reject it. But, but don't you think that he knows, I agree with that. It's kind of the way I've resolved it in my own mind, right or probably wrong, but um, <laughs> is that you, have, that you have the free will to make decisions on a daily basis that God knows in advance what decision you're going to make. So I think that he knew he knew about the interaction with Abraham, for example. He knew what, who was going to say what and what the result of that. That was just part of the plan to ultimately, for his plan, his overall plan to be carried out by. Well, I don't think that God scripted it, if that's what you meant. I think that, yes, God foreknew because he is unbounded by time and place and space. But, well, Brian, you had a. You had a question or a comment well, or a you, thought? You just, you just uh, alluded to what I was going to say, and, and uh, I, I don't know whether this is helpful or whether it just makes it more confusing, but my, my feeling or understanding is that uh, in God, in, in heaven, uh, there, there is no linear time as we understand it. And, and uh, <clears throat> is no linear time if, if, if it's just all kind of there together that 
Let's turn to the five questions that, that Paul poses here. What are we to say about these things? Which is where he sets up that last passage. And I understand that what he means is, what is our reaction, what is our response to these five affirmations? These five comforting things that God does for us that we can absolutely bank upon. If God is for us, who is against us? Question one. He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? In the translation that I'm reading. If God is for us, who can be against us? We know that the enemies of Israel in the Old Testament, even those enemies that conquered Israel, eventually came to ruin. Israel was God's people. We are the new nation of Israel. All of us who were believers in the, in the fulfillment of the law and the prophets through Christ. We are the new Israel. If God is for the nation Israel in the Old Testament, how much more is he for those of us who are the new Israel through the, the fulfillment of of his law and his prophets through his son. How much more are we the new Israel? How much more is he for us? And how much less can anyone be against us? Question two, an unanswerable question. He who did not spare his own son, a direct allusion to Abraham's righteousness, Abraham's obedience, his willingness to give up his son Isaac at the command of God. But God, who did not withhold his own son the way he allowed Abraham to withhold Isaac, he who gave up his own son, would he not also through that son give us everything? Who could deny that? He gave his son what lesser things would he not give us? Is there anything more precious than God's only begotten Son? If he, gives him, if he gives us that, if he gives us the Son, then that implies that there's nothing that he won't give us. Question three, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who is there to give a charge when we have Christ as our advocate. Who can bring a charge against elect? What judgment 
can have any effect after the, the ultimate judge has already justified us, treated us as blameless, even though we should by law be judged as guilty. Who will condemn us? Question four. We've been bought for a price. The price which was, which was Christ's suffering. He has interceded for us. He is our advocate. We are now, through him, dead to sin. Who will condemn those who are dead to sin? Who can condemn those who are no longer slaves to sin? Just like nobody can bring a charge against those whom God has already justified, also nobody can condemn those of us whom he has released from prison. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? This is the really good stuff. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. That sounds a somewhat discordant note, but it actually comes from Psalm 44. It is about the nation of Israel. For we are God's people. We are therefore. Get it back to the book of Acts. The followers of Christ who shared in his suffering and who rejoiced at being able to share in his suffering. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Seven things. The first three, Stott likens to the hostile world. The next two, he likens to physical privation. The last two he likens to official opposition. None of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. None of those things can, can separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here is how John Stott puts it, and better than this I cannot do. He says, he wrote, since Christ proved his love for us by his sufferings, so also our sufferings cannot possibly separate us from Christ's love. So there's the answer. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. This is the climax of Paul's explanation of the relationship between the law and grace. This is what Christ has done for us. And because of his love, through his suffering, our suffering is meaningless. Our suffering is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that is to come. Because our suffering, like Christ's suffering, is, is part of what brings us to God. 
Lori? Here's Stott's summation about who can separate us from the love of Christ. And all of these awful things that Paul lays out, seven awful things that cannot do it. Stott writes, Since Christ proved his love for us by his suffering, so also our sufferings cannot possibly separate us from his love. What better words to end with the bell? Thanks be to God. Next week, we will start chapters 9 through 11, where Paul explains how God's will for his people, the Jews, as well as all of the rest of the world, has by no means been frustrated. It is still being worked out, and that ultimately God's will, his plan is for all of the world to be reconciled to him through Christ. Until then, have a great week.